Isaiah chapter 40, and from this text our brother is going to preach Isaiah 40, beginning in verse 12. Isaiah 40, verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord who has Or what man shows him his counsel? Who did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not be suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. Continuing in verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right, and my right is discarded, disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary. And young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles and they shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Thus ends the reading of the Word of God. What an enormous privilege to be with you this morning. And uh, thank you to your pastor, Mark, and uh, Joe who Joe Barnabas, who who did a lot of work preparing for this, and uh, for the privilege it has been to be with you over this weekend. Uh, The day yesterday was just a a thrilling time for me uh, to be able to, to guide a number of you who were here through a study of the Trinity. What a tremendous privilege it is to take time out like that to understand God better. And this morning, really my, my goal is to do something like that again this morning, and that is to paint a portrait of God for you uh, from, from the Word of God that will help us understand a bit better who God is. Now, you know, I know that in this church, you get a lot of good teaching, and that's a great thing. I mean, this is really a church church like, uh, there aren't many like these around, you know, and uh, you're privileged to be here. And boy, that end of the year report was so encouraging to realize how God is at work here. And uh, my prayer is that you will continue to support and, and encourage the ministry and be involved in all of it to take advantage of it. And uh, so, so you'll learn more things that will, in, in a sense, buttress this and, and, uh, and that this is a part of. But nonetheless, this morning is a, a special time for me to be able to unpack some things about God that are precious and glorious. And we're going to do that through looking at one attribute in particular, an attribute that we don't often hear about in our churches, and that is the attribute of God's self-sufficiency. So what uh, the order that we're going to do, in fact, you might want to follow along in your outline uh, that you have in your worship folder, but what I'm going to do is give you a definition first of God's self-sufficiency, then we'll take a look at passages that support this idea, that indicate this, in fact, is the teaching of the Bible, and uh, following that, we'll take a look at a couple objections that have been raised to this doctrine, 
and then uh, some application to our own lives. We'll only be able to do a little bit of that, but we'll post on the website uh, a full text of the application so you can have that written out in full. So, uh, definition, passages, objections, and applications. That's the order of the message this morning. First of all, what does it mean then to say that God is self-sufficient? Well, it means this. It means that God possesses within himself, intrinsically and eternally, every quality in infinite measure. Let me say that again. You might want to write it down just to think through this. To say that God is self-sufficient is to say that God possesses within himself, intrinsically and eternally, every quality in infinite measure. Now, let's think about this definition. What is it saying? God possesses within himself every quality. What are these qualities that I have in mind here? Well, what I have in mind is everything that is qualitatively good. Anything you can think of, and perhaps some things we can't think of, that are qualitatively good, what the Puritans used to call the perfections of God, these are possessed by God within himself. Things like holiness, love, goodness, power, knowledge, wisdom. These qualities are God's own possession. All of them. There is no good thing that is not God's possession. He has all of them within himself. Now, the definition says this, that God possesses within himself these qualities intrinsically. So you might ask the question, you need to say that. If you said that he possesses these within himself, do you have to say also that he possesses them intrinsically? Isn't that redundant? And the answer is, no, it's not redundant. You really have to say that, and here's why. Because we can possess things within ourselves that are not intrinsic to us. We have to take them in from outside. We are dependent on something outside of us in order to bring those into us. And the easiest example I can give to you of such a thing is if all of us would right now take a deep breath together. Ready? Ah, feels good, doesn't it? All right, well, what you have just done is take something within yourself that is extrinsic to you. That air that is now within you is not your own. You had to bring it in. You were dependent upon something outside of you, and, and it, uh, it brought that within you. So God's qualities, then, this definition would say, are his intrinsically. He doesn't receive any of them from some outside source. He's not dependent upon anything outside of himself. Everything that is qualitatively good is within God by virtue of his being God. They are his by nature, and hence they are intrinsic to him. He possesses these qualities not only intrinsically, but eternally. That is, there never has been a time, never will be a time, when God lacks any of these qualities. They are always His. There's never a need in God that has to be supplied. He has infinitely within Himself all of these qualities that supply everything that He needs as God. And then the last uh, qualification in the definition is that God possesses these qualities within Himself intrinsically, eternally, and in infinite measure. Now, what does infinite mean? Well, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a negation term, right? It, it's, it's saying that, it, that he possesses them in, in not a finite way. So what does it mean to be finite? 
Well, finitude simply means to be bounded or restricted or limited. So this says of God that he possesses everything that is qualitatively good within himself intrinsically by his very nature as God. He possesses these eternally and he does so without measure, without boundary, without restriction, without limitation. My, what an incredible thing to realize this is the true God. What a great God God is. Now look with me at Isaiah 40. We'll begin looking at some scripture passages that help us understand that indeed this is God's revelation to us of himself. Isaiah 40, beginning at verse 12, where we read just a moment ago. And what we find here is that the prophet at this point is uh, using rhetorical questions to make these understandings of God more clear to us. And rhetorical questions, of course, are questions whose answers are so obvious, you don't have to give an answer, like, is the Pope Catholic? I think we know that, yes, so indeed. So here are some rhetorical questions to us that, in fact, tell us much about God. Verse 12, look, look at it with me. Who do you know, asks the Lord through the prophet, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens by the span and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales? Now think about those images with me. Let's take that first one. Who do you know who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? The Pacific Ocean, the Atlantic Ocean, the Mediterranean Sea that would have been familiar to Isaiah in his day, cupping them in the hollow of his hand. You know, I have a precious memory of a time with my own family. Uh, we were on vacation in uh, Oregon at Cannon Beach. Any of you been to Cannon Beach, Oregon, by any chance? I see a few hands. Uh, one of the prettiest places you could imagine being. Uh, we had a cabin there for a couple days on the beach, and... Uh, my two girls, we have two daughters who are now grown, but my two girls were about seven and four years old at the time. And uh, at breakfast that morning, I had read this passage for our family devotions with this idea in mind. So we read Isaiah 40, and after breakfast I said, Hey girls, do you want to do an experiment with Daddy down at the beach? Oh yeah, Daddy, we do. Sure, so they're excited about this. So they grab their beach towels and we head down to the beach, and when we get there, I said, now, do you remember that passage we read this morning about how God can hold the waters of the world in the hollow of his hand? Do you remember that? Yeah? Okay, now, here's what we're going to do. You stay here on the shoreline, and I'm going to go out into the Pacific Ocean here and lean down and scoop up all of the water I can in the hollow of my two hands, and I want you to watch really carefully and see how far the level of that ocean dips when I do that. Okay, Daddy, they're excited for this, you know, so so I go out there and lean down and scoop up the water. Did it change? No, Daddy. I said, now, girls, watch carefully. Look. So I lean down and scoop it up. Did it change? No, Daddy. So I came out of the, out of the water and got down on my knees. There, I level with my girls. And I said, now, girls, I want you to learn something really significant about the difference between how big we are, and how big God is. You see, I'm your dad, and I go out and I scoop up all the water I can in the hollow of my two hands, and you can't tell anything has changed. But imagine a hand so big. Look at this ocean. 
That if that hand came down and scooped up the water, that ocean bed would be dry. That's how big God is. What an image. My goodness. Look at the next one that we have in this verse. Who do you know who can mark off the heavens by the span? Hmm, span. The distance between the tip of your thumb and little finger. A measuring instrument you have with you all the time. Perhaps not the most accurate one, but nonetheless, there it is. Who do you know who can mark off the heavens by the span? Light travels at what speed? 186,000 miles per second. Per second. At that speed, light from the sun takes roughly seven and a half minutes to get here. 93 million miles from the time it leaves the sun till it arrives at planet Earth, traveling that 93 million miles at 186,000 miles per second takes about seven and a half minutes. Now, the next closest star, our next door neighbor, is a star that is four and a half light years away. That is, light leaving that star traveling at 186,000 miles per second takes four and a half years to arrive at planet Earth. That's our next door neighbor. Now, how many stars are there in the Milky Way galaxy, which, which if you go out on a starry night and look and see most of the stars, almost all of the stars you see there are just in our neighborhood, the Milky Way galaxy. How many stars are there in the Milky Way galaxy? Roughly 10 billion stars. How many galaxies are there in the universe? Hundreds of millions of comparably sized galaxies spread out across this universe Millions of light years from each other. Who do you know who can mark off the heavens by the span? What an image of the greatness, the immensity, the power of God. Who do you know who can calculate the dust of the earth by the measure and weigh the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales? Who do you know who can hold the scales that weigh the mountains? Weigh over here the Rocky Mountains and put over here the Himalayas. Hold the scales that weigh the mountains. My God is great. He is powerful. He is immense. Now, in the next verses, the rhetorical questions continue, but the subject changes from the immensity of God and the power of God to his knowledge and wisdom. Read with me. Verse 13 and 14. Who do you know, asked the prophet, who has ever directed the spirit of the Lord? Or as his counselor has informed him, with whom did he consult? Who gave him understanding? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and informed him of the way of understanding? What's the answer to those rhetorical questions? Who has ever been God's advisor? Answer? No one. God has no advisors. God needs no advisors. God wants no advisors. Now, I thought of this. I thought of this passage at the inauguration ceremony of our new president a few weeks back, I thought to myself, what would we do as a country if uh, President Obama, upon taking the oath of office and becoming president, announced as his first action as president that he would have no cabinet, no advisors, that he claimed that he knew everything that needed to be known for him to be an effective president of the United States? What do you suppose would happen at that point? Impeachment hearings would begin almost instantly, wouldn't they? Because he doesn't know everything. Isn't it amazing? God 
does. He knows absolutely everything. He knows it perfectly. I mean, haven't you had this experience so often in your own life when you realize things you thought you knew rightly you were wrong about? This never happens to God. Never. He always knows everything, and he knows everything exactly rightly, and his wisdom is flawless, is impeccable in being able to, to discern how to use that knowledge to bring about the very best, as he alone knows that is. Indeed, his knowledge and his wisdom is perfect and infinite. Now, verse 15 It shifts from speaking about who God is now to the implications for us. And let me tell you, if I, if I ever did an edited version of the Bible and had a chance to put in a, uh, a, a little editor's note right here, right before verse 15, I'd say, warning, the following passage is deadly to your pride. Here it comes. Verse 15. What are the implications of this great view of God to us? Behold, says the prophet, the nations. Now stop, get the significance right there. Nations, the collective totality of humanity considered together. All that we have, all of our prowess, our power, our knowledge and our wisdom considered collectively is like what before God? All of the nations are like a drop from a bucket. They're regarded as a speck of dust. On the scales. Now, what's common between those two images? Drop from a bucket, speck of dust. They both have in common that they are what? Tiny, puny, insignificant, inconsequential. You know, a speck of dust is inconsequential because it doesn't weigh in. Isn't that the point? You don't worry about a speck of dust on the scales. It doesn't amount to anything. So here is, here is the nations before God are a drop from a bucket, a speck of dust on the scales. Now, you might think, someone out there might be thinking, but at least we're a drop. You know, at least we're a speck of dust. There, we're something, right? Keep reading. It gets worse. <laughs> Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. They're regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up islands like fine dust. Even Lebanon, that forested area to the north of Israel. Even Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. Verse 17, all the nations, here we are back again. All the nations are what before God? They are as nothing before him. Well, folks, we've been demoted. We've gone from drop and speck to nothing. Now, it can't get worse than that, can it? It does. Keep reading. Verse 17. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless or emptiness. The Hebrew word is zero. Okay. Now, my friends, it is crucial for us to understand what this means and what it doesn't mean. Let's start with what it doesn't mean. When, when God says the nations before me are, are considered as less than nothing and meaningless, he does not mean I don't care about those nations. They mean nothing to me. How do we know this cannot be what God means? Think. How about John 3.16? For God so loved 
the nations, the world, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Does that sound like a God who doesn't care about the nations? Are you kidding? Even in Isaiah 40, if you ask yourself the question, why is God so insistent that his people understand his greatness, his power, his might, his wisdom, his knowledge? Why do they want, why, why does God want us to know how great he is? Read with me, end of the chapter, verse 28. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary. To him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not be tired. They will walk and not become weary. Why does God want his people to know how great he is? So that in their weakness, their folly, They will know they can go to Him to receive from Him the wisdom they do not have, the the knowledge they do not have, the power they do not have, because He has it infinitely. He never grows weary or tired. He always knows what is best. So He wants His people to know they can come to Him. They must come to Him who has everything they lack. That he has. Okay, so when God says, back to verse 17, when God says, the nations are before me as less than nothing and meaningless, it cannot mean I don't care about those nations. They mean nothing to me. Here's what it means get ready to be humbled, my friends. It means this when you consider the infinite fullness of the greatness of God's Power, knowledge, wisdom, the perfections that are His in infinite fullness. What can the nations, the collective totality of humanity, what can they add to the greatness that is God's? Answer, nothing, absolutely nothing. Because he has it all. Indeed, he is self-sufficient. He possesses within himself, intrinsically and eternally, every quality in infinite measure. He cannot be added to. Now let's look at another passage that helps us with this. Psalm 50. Turn back if you would. Psalm 50. This is a very interesting psalm. In it, we find out that Israel is on trial. The people of God, yes. They're on trial. And God is functioning in this psalm in three capacities simultaneously. God is the judge of his people who are on trial. He is the prosecuting attorney, prosecuting the case against them. And he is the chief witness. All three of these, God is functioning. Let's pick up with me at verse 5. Verse 5 of Psalm 50, God says, Gather to me my godly ones, 
those who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. So, I mean, obviously, this is his people who are given the law by which they are to sacrifice before him. So these these are the people of God, Israel. Gather them to me, and the heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Verse 7. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. I do not reprove you for your sacrifices. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. Now, hold it right there. Wait a minute. What is wrong? What what is God upset with them about? They're bringing sacrifices as they've been commanded to do. I mean, this looks like Israel in the good days. I mean, there were many times in Israel's history when they forsook the sacrifices they were supposed to bring, and here they are bringing them. So what's the problem? Keep reading. We'll find out. Verse 9. I shall take no young bull out of your house or male goats out of your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains, and everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, don't miss the if there, if I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all it contains. Now, verse 13 is the key. Look at it with me. Verse 13. Shall I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of male goats? Aha. Aha. Now we know. If you know anything about ancient Near Eastern religions, all of a sudden we realize what's going on here. In the ancient Near East, all the, all the nations that surrounded Israel had a common understanding of the God-creature relationship. And it went like this. The gods themselves were needy beings. They got hungry. They got thirsty. And and, then the people were supposed to feed them, help them out. So they would bring these sacrifices and the gods would eat the flesh of, of of the bulls and drink the blood of the goats. Their bellies would be filled. Their thirst would be quenched. They would be made happy. And then they would bring blessings upon the people who had helped them. We help out God. He helps out us. That's how it worked in the ancient Near East. And God wants to go on record. You can not help me out. I do not need the sacrifices you are bringing. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. The world is mine and all it contains. Now, the corrective to this misunderstanding of worship, of of the worship of the true God, comes in the very next verse, verse 14. Look at it with me. So what are they to do instead? Offer to God a sacrifice of what? Thanksgiving. Now think, think. If they offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving, they're thanking God. What does that imply about who's the giver and who's the receiver? God's God's the giver. We're the receiver. We're the needy ones who have been helped by God. God is the full one who has poured out his blessing to us. We thank him because he has helped us. Or verse 15. Look at it here. You can see it again. Verse 15. Call upon me in the day of trouble and I will rescue you and you will honor me. That's how it works. God is the rescuer. We sang it this morning, didn't we? 
God is the redeemer. God is the provider. We are the needy ones who are the recipients of all that we need, all that we lack from the infinite fullness of all that God has. The dependency relationship between God and the world runs one way. We depend upon God how much? For absolutely everything. We'll see this in the next passage we'll look at in a moment. Absolutely everything we depend upon God. For the breath you are taking this minute, for the heartbeat of your heart this instant, you depend upon God. How much does God depend upon us? Not at all. Nothing. Need, says A.W. Tozer in the knowledge of the holy. Need is a creature word. Not worthy of the creator. Indeed. Let's look at one more passage. Acts 17. Acts 17, verses 24 and 25. Acts 17, 24 and 25. In this uh, section, Paul is in Athens... He has come there waiting for friends to join him. And while he waits, he was walking around the city, the, the streets of the city of Athens and observed their idolatry. There were shrines and temples and altars and inscriptions to every known deity. And it broke his heart because, here's the irony, in this culture that prided themselves in knowing about every god, the one god they didn't know about happened to be the one true and living God. So Paul is burdened to tell them who this God is. They invite him to go to the Areopagus in Athens and speak to them about this God. So here we pick up at verse 24 where he begins. This is theology 101 for Paul. This is where you start in getting God right. Verse 24. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Do you see self-sufficiency there? For he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. My, what a marvelous statement of God's self-sufficiency. And it's grounded by Paul. If you had time to look at this carefully, I know you'd see this. It's grounded by Paul in, in three ways. The first one is the very first thing he says, the God who made the world and all things in it. God is creator. And he uses that to ground or support the idea that God is self-sufficient. So here's my question to you. Think hard. What is the logical connection between the fact that God is creator and God is self-sufficient? How are these two things connected? God is creator and God is self-sufficient. Do you see it? How, how does God create biblically? He speaks and brings into existence a universe that did not exist previously, right? He creates out of nothing. Theologians call this creatio ex nihilo. Out of nothing, he brings the universe into existence. Now, now think, if that's the case, God is God apart from the universe. Well, that, that means that when he brings the universe into existence, then it cannot be the case that God is somehow dependent upon the universe because he existed fully as God. No difference between who he was before and after. Fully as God before the universe or apart from the universe as he is God with the universe. The, so the universe, rather than the universe contributing anything to God, all that the universe is, all that the universe has 
All that you are, all that you have, is dependent entirely upon God giving to it, to us, what we have. We are dependent upon Him altogether. He is not dependent upon us at all. Second argument that Paul uses is not only did he create it, but he rules it. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he's the ruler of all things. So that means that God owns it all. To, to make it is to own it. To own it is to have rightful rulership over it. So it's like in Psalm 50. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you, for the world is mine and all it contains. So indeed, God possesses everything. Anything that we claim to own, that we say is our own, is ultimately and completely owned by God. We are granted to be stewards, and that's it. God is the owner of everything, because He made it all. So if He owns it, He doesn't have to get permission to use it. He doesn't have to go next door and ask the neighbor, you know, can I borrow this to help me with something? No, He has everything. He is self-sufficient. And then His final argument for self-sufficiency comes at the very end of verse 25, where he says, for he gives to all people life and breath and all things. Get the significance of the two uses of all. He gives to all people life and breath and all things. So indeed, he's the creator, he's the Lord, and he is the giver, giver of every good and perfect gift, James 1.17. Indeed, all that we have, that we that we consider to be a good thing, a qualitatively good thing, is derived from the kindness of a God who has given it to us. He cannot be benefited by us. We are benefited by Him for everything we have. God is self-sufficient. He possesses within Himself, intrinsically and eternally, every quality in infinite measure. Okay, now let's think just real quickly here about a couple ways that this doctrine has been denied and objected to. One of them is a major theological system. In fact, it really is the major theological system uh, that was developed in the 20th century in North America. You probably haven't heard of it, but it, boy, I tell you, it just swept uh, the, the liberal uh, academic world. Uh, pl- places like Harvard and, and, and University of Chicago Divinity School uh, were, were riddled with process theologians. Process theology is a view that holds that everything is in process, including God. God himself is in the process of becoming better than he was the day before each subsequent day. God is constantly in the process of becoming, becoming better. Now, Here's the key point for us right now. How does God get better day by day? And here's their answer. Primarily, as we contribute value to God, which he would otherwise lack. That is a direct quote from Charles Hartshorn, the leader of process theology back in the middle of the 20th century. We contribute value to God, which he would otherwise lack. I mean, it takes the God-world relationship that, I, that I've just been talking about with you, we've been thinking about, where God is the great infinite possessor of everything that's good and provides for us needy people down here. He's the giver, we're the receiver. It turns it on its head, doesn't it? 
And it says, we're the ones who give to God. We make God in our image, don't we? God is beholden to us for what we give Him. We make God better day by day. Boy, God's lucky to have me here. Indeed, that's the way process theology thinks. Now, the second view that is also opposed to self-sufficiency may surprise you. My name for it is the popular evangelical view. That is, in our churches. In our churches, at least the church I grew up in, and I have spoken on this a number of places, I know what I learned in my church growing up has been taught out there somehow in a lot of places. And it basically goes like this. I can remember uh, a friend of mine in the fifth grade asking my Sunday school teacher uh, this question. Why did God make the world? Why, why are we here? And here's what she said. She said, you know, before God created the world, he was all by himself. He was lonely. He had no one to talk to, no one to have fellowship with. And he thought, boy, wouldn't it be wonderful if there were some other people like me that, that I could talk with and, and have fellowship with and this would fill this emptiness in my own heart. So that's why we're here, is to fellowship with God and, and fill this void in God himself. And I thought to myself at the time, wow, what a great reason for living, to help out poor God. Poor God. You know, and you know, and so so many things in our church kind of fit that that model of poor God. You know, um, when the offering was taken, you know, or or especially when there were was special special uh, building programs or those sorts of things. You know, boy, God wants to do these things, but His hands are tied. You know, unless you give, or missions calls. Oh, my, it rang through clearly then. Oh, God loves those people overseas in those heathen areas, and he wants to bring them the gospel, but, oh, my, you know, he, he can't do anything unless you go. So there it is, poor God. So, you know, it's amazing how much service for God can be rendered that is fully idolatrous. It is filled with self-importance rather than understanding God's fullness, that he doesn't need me, you, or anything that we have or offer. So, application. I'm only, give you, I, I'm only going to talk about one thing, and then I'll ha- have, uh, have uh, uh, Pastor Joe post on the website the full text of the application here, so you can get that later. But I'm just going to get, just going to do one application with you, and that is the one that is on uh, under uh, capital letter B number one. Why are we here? What is our purpose? If the answer to the question "Why did God create us? Why are we here?" is not He was lonely. By the way, what's the theological reason for knowing that cannot be the case? God never has been lonely. Now, those of you who were here, here yesterday better know the answer to this. What's the theological reason for knowing God could not be lonely? The Trinity. The Trinity. He is, a, he is a community of persons together in intimate social relationship that far surpasses anything we could conceive of. He is infinitely happy as God. So, if he didn't create the world because he's lonely, if that's not the right answer... What is it? Why are we here? Well, my friends, are you ready to marvel? Here it is. God did not create us 
in order to fill some need in him. He has no needs to be filled. So he created us rather empty, needy creatures to be filled with him. Incredible, isn't it? God wants his people to experience in finite measure the richness and the joy of the fullness of his character that he knows infinitely. He wants us to experience that in finite measure, to be filled with his knowledge, his wisdom, his holiness, his character reproduced in us so that we can understand something of what God knows for eternity as joy and happiness. So here's another way to put it. God created us to be loved by Him. To be loved by Him. Now you say, well, wait a minute. I thought the great commandment was love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I I thought that's what we're here to do. Love God. Oh, okay. We love because He first loved us. Where, Where do we get... If we're called to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, love our neighbor, where do we get this love from that that we are to love God with and love others with? Where does it come from? What's the source of this love? Who possesses, who alone possesses love intrinsically, eternally, and in infinite measure? God does. So we receive from Him the, the love he has to give, the grace that he has to give, the truth that he has to give, and, and that we have the privilege. Here's where Christian service comes in. We have the privilege of being conduits, channels of blessing. That was a hymn I remember singing growing up. Channels of blessing. As what God has flowed into our lives, we have the privilege to pass on to others. It's incredible. I mean, Christian service, goodness, uh, if not the first word that comes to mind, one of the first words that ought to come to our minds when we think of serving the Lord. And this isn't, I'm not speaking here of merely sort of those in professional ministry, like myself or your pastors here. I mean all of us, because we are all servants of God, right? And and we we are all called uh, to to be people who minister to others. What does it mean to serve the Lord? Remember Acts 17 said, God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. And yet Psalm 100 says, serve the Lord with gladness. So which is it? Can we serve him or not? And the answer is, yes, we are called to serve him, but not by somehow contributing something to him that he lacks. What does it mean then? It means receiving from him and then having the privilege of passing this on to others. One of the first words that ought to come to mind when you think of Christian ministry or service is privilege. Because you see, God could bestow that grace on others himself directly. He doesn't have to use us to do it. But he says, I want you to have the privilege of sharing in the joy 
of bringing grace into the lives of other people. You get in on this. That's what Christian service is. Why isn't God gloriously kind, generous, overflowing in the fullness of who He is as God? It is humbling to realize God doesn't need me. He doesn't need anything that I have to offer. And it is incredible. Though that is the case, though He doesn't need me, He doesn't need you, He doesn't need any of us, yet He loves us and longs for us to experience in finite measure what He alone knows infinitely and then have the privilege to pass it on to others. So my friends, let me close with this, an admonition as we end this morning. If it's the case that we exist first and foremost to be loved by God, to receive from Him what He has in infinite fullness and we lack altogether, if that's why we're here to receive from God, then my goodness, ought we not be a people who goes after Him? who puts ourselves in the place where we are, we are eager recipients of what He has to give us, to fill us up with His truth and His grace and kindness and mercy, filling our lives so that we, too, out of the fullness of what God has granted us, overflow with His character showing forth to others. This is what the Christian life is to be about. God help us to be diligent, passionate about pursuing Him with all of our hearts to receive from Him. And as we are satisfied with what He gives to us, we then have the privilege of glorifying the one to whom we are completely dependent. Indeed, God is glorified most in us when we are satisfied most in Him. Indeed, it is true. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for the privilege this morning of thinking together about glorious truths of Your greatness and our littleness, Your infinite wisdom and our folly. Oh, Lord God, please deliver us from the delusion of self-exaltation and grant us grace to grow in God-exaltation. Do this good work in us. Humble us as we see your greatness in greater measure. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.